Warm Regards is supported by Wonder Capital, an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. That's wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. This is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the scientists, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Andy Revkin in the Hudson Valley of New York, filling in for our regular lead host, Eric Holthaus. This week, we're going to talk about climate politics as this insane but consequential presidential race nears the final stage. With us, as always, is my co-host, Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey, Andy. And I hear you've had a, more than your share of visits of uh, Donald Trump up there. Yeah, I think he's done three and has had a couple of high-profile surrogates in, in humble Bangor, Maine. Wow. So, and, and perfect guest host to talk about that aspect of things is uh, Kate Shepard, enterprise editor and senior reporter at the Huffington Post. Kate's been on this, uh, her beat it for a while now has been this interface of climate scientists, climate science and the politics of energy and the environment. And Kate, I don't know how you do it in that beltway. Oh. How do you do it? Tired, tiredly and with much anticipation of the day after the election. And with cats or cat, right? Does that help? Oh, no, there's three of them. Yeah, oh, cats, plural, yeah. So they do help. And uh, so so uh, could you just give a quick sketch of where you think uh, things are? You know, climate um, had been, the issue had been mainly focused on Trump. Anyone talking about climate change in the context of this race so far was sort of like, uh, looking back at Donald Trump's um, amazing statements about China, it's all Chinese plot and um, the fact that he had flip-flopped, like I wrote about early on, where he, when he was just a businessman, he signed a big letter saying we should do all the things that now he says we shouldn't do. But but now uh, the, the ball seemed to flip a little bit back toward um, Hillary Clinton's court this past few days with uh, WikiLeaks from her um, John Podesta, who's been sort of a, a background character through this whole many years of Obama's campaign and um, I mean, Obama's presidency and then uh, now in the campaign. So what's your take? Is this is this an issue for her? And just generally give us kind of an update on the Washington end of things. Well, I, yeah, obviously, environmentalists aren't pleased about some of the Podesta comments that surfaced in this email trove that was released from WikiLeaks. But uh, the fact of the matter is, what's their alternative, right? You have Hillary Clinton, who talks about climate change, cares about it has put it on her list of issues. You've got John Podesta, who was arguably one of the people who really got Obama to act on climate change. He took it pretty seriously and was part of really put it to the forefront at the White House. And then you have, you know, on the other side, you have Donald Trump, right, who thinks it's a hoax. So you might not be totally happy with John Podesta or things he said in the emails or the way that they've approached climate change, but it's certainly uh, better to environmentalists than the, the opposition would be right now. Yeah, and some of that got at this issue that's come up a little bit about people having kind of a a public agenda and a private agenda. In a way, I think that's that broader issue has been revealed here too. Like, um, I guess there were these one of the comments that seemed to really get under people's skin was where she was talking about um, those the keep it in the ground crowd as having to quote unquote get a life, and, and you know, and then on the surface, of course, everything's kind of progressive and there's Al Gore campaigning for and it must be hard you know being um 
sort of in that more middle of the road position. Well, I, I think that's also like, look, Hillary Clinton's been in Washington a long time. Uh, John Podesta has been in Washington a long time, long time. They're kind of cold, hard political realists on this while still wanting to address the issue. And then you, the, the sort of keep it in the ground and other environmental folks can have a much more ambitious approach because they're pushing from the outside. So, I mean, I guess it, maybe I've been in Washington too long and I'm too cynical, but I understand, you know, where they're coming from. And I, I think it also comes down to, you know, when, whether or not you're able to advocate for a single issue and you can push that as hard and far as you want, um, or if you have to balance out, you know, <clears throat> the needs of, you know, the planet in terms of climate change and human health and environmental impacts of climate change with the fact that, you know, you've got, um, you know, a lot of people who rely on fossil fuels for their livelihoods, for, you know, local economies that would, you know, shut down overnight and, um, you know, and, and even just to survive the winter here in Maine. Um, and so it's, I think sometimes when you have to balance a whole bunch of different groups and, and their own individual needs, you know, the, the get a life isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily need to be read as a complete dismissal of, of, of getting off of fossil fuels as much as it is an indication that, you know, there's, there's real realistic progress that can be made with the technology that we have. Um, I guess it, it just comes back to, you know, progressive change versus um, sort of, I don't know, overnight change. Incrementalism, that evil incrementalism rears its ugly head again. Well, I mean, Clinton herself said as much, too, when she was on the campaign trail in the primary against Bernie Sanders and the Keep It in the Ground folks were following her around and asking her about this quite a bit. And I mean, she said then, yeah, I would like to get away from fossil fuels eventually when I think it's possible. So she's sort of both acknowledging that, yeah, we have to do that, but also that it's not something you can do overnight. Right. I mean, I just, just thinking here, you know, in the, I, I was reading the other day that here in Maine, uh, you know, a lot of people are turning back to coal to heat their homes because it's more efficient than wood and um, it doesn't, you know, create as much of a mess and, and it burns longer and, you know, which is, it's, and, and meanwhile, the reason they went to wood in the first place and pellets was because, you know, it just the, the heating costs of um, natural gas got too much even when natural gas prices, you know, went down for a while then they went back up and not everywhere here has access to, to natural gas and so I mean for a lot of a lot of people especially a lot of senior citizens you know it's they have to they can't vote on climate change if they don't survive the winter you know so it's just what are, what are you going to tell those people let alone someone you know that works in the fossil fuel industry um, and doesn't necessarily have a, a, a smooth pathway to a, a green energy job because there's no training or infrastructure for them. Yeah, I was really interested. Um, the other thing that caught my eye the last few days was when Obama and President Obama and Catherine Hayhoe, our recent guest, and Leo DiCaprio did this on this conversation on the White House lawn, this South by South lawn thing. And Obama, I was going back through the transcript and I hadn't watched it at the time and I hadn't had time to write about it, but he was... He got right to the same point. He did it in the context of gas, gasoline tank, you know, price of gas for a, you know, a working person. And he sort of said, you know, we, he said, Catherine is a wonderful example of the right way to do it, to not be dismissive of people's concerns when it comes to what this will mean for me and my family. And then he says, um, and this gets back to the incrementalism thing, he, you know, Obama, the, I don't know, because he's leaving office or whatever, but. You know, often when he's doing his canned speeches, it's all about urgent action and priority. And but here he said, "So I think 
I think having an understanding that we're not going to complete this transition overnight, that there's not going to be some compromise, that, that there are going to be some compromises along the way, that that's, that's frustrating because science tells us we don't have time to compromise. On the other hand, if we actually want to get something done, then we have to take people's immediate current views into account. I, it, it was interesting. And again, he's kind of like safe now. I guess he doesn't have to worry about one camp or the other getting disengaged. But um, the, there seems to be a shift toward in his and DiCaprio was there on stage and all DiCaprio talks about is urgent, urgent action now, now, now. It's, it just was interesting. I don't know if that, that kind of thing has caught both your attention. Yeah, def I mean, definitely. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's interesting because it makes me and maybe it's because I live in a rural place. Um, you know, I live in the third largest metropolis in Maine of 30,000 people. And, you know, even in my neighborhood, not all streets are on the natural gas line. And so a lot of our homes are heated by oil. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, what 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 do I what bill do I not pay? you know, in college to make sure that my oil bill gets paid. What, you know, and I remember my parents struggling with this, you know, these, you know, incredibly expensive oil bills. And, and it wasn't a matter of choosing something more environmentally friendly for them. It was, if they had had the option, they would have chosen something cheaper. Um, because in the wintertime, you know, there were, we faced real, you know, economic hardship at times because of the cost of heating our home. And they're just, it's not like there were all these green energy alternatives or, or efficiency alternatives that were out there for working class people to, to tap into in rural places. And um, yeah, so I just, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where if you haven't had to struggle with those kinds of decisions for yourself, I mean, it's, it's not like the average citizen is able to, to come up with those alternatives. Those, those alternatives have to be, you know, financially feasible. They have to be available, widely available and, and to the people who need them and, um, and I, th I think we, you know, in, in the meantime, you know, we can't just, it's like if we were to shut down fracking, you know, all the people who rely on natural gas because it's more affordable than oil here in New England, what are they going to do? Um, and I mean, I think it's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen this too. And then it gets even worse when you go overseas. I was in Nairobi in the spring and, uh, I might've mentioned this on an earlier episode where I went into this vast slum and in Nairobi, far from like the UN. The UN has this very shishi kind of complex there. It looks like a university campus. And then there are towers and rich people and stuff. But you get into the slums and and just like you were saying, people in Maine are going back to coal. Um, there they're cooking on charcoal. And charcoal is like the worst possible thing you can do in, in an indoor setting. You know, so they're, they're killing themselves with the indoor pollution. They're, someone is deforesting a forest. The Somali terrorists are the ones who are smuggling it in. And, and it's like, don't talk to them about, um, they also, they can't cook on solar panels. They need, they need fuel. And, and that's where sometimes uh, countries that are in that situation get frustrated. India is like the worst case scenario. Well, it's like the classic one saying, don't tell us what to do with our coal. And I wanted to circle us back to the wide view too. Kate, I don't know how much you've been tracking these. It, there was like this blizzard of news the last few weeks on uh, kind of the diplomacy front. Um, the uh, Paris Agreement just passed this. There's so many quirky numbers in this stuff. This is the 55 parties responsible for 55% of emissions. Once they all signed on, then the, that means the agreement, the, the Paris Agreement will take legal force on November 4th. But that happened. So now it, it's actually going to become for what it is, uh, law, uh, you know, it's not binding for many of the parties, but um, that's one thing. And it got a lot of headlines. Then there's the aviation, this deal with aviation. Um, I wish uh, Eric were on, on the line so we could talk about flying and 
And that this is where governments are slowly moving toward from voluntary toward other things to do to make airplanes more efficient uh, beyond 2027. And then there's the uh, HFCs, the uh, fluorocarbons that were a great solution to the ozone problem, but have proved to be a bigger issue for climate. So Kate, I don't know how much this has played into what you're hearing. Um, it's sort of in a, in a Washington context these days. Well, it's playing, it's playing in the, the Paris agreement. You're right. It's sort of hard to get lost. It's easy to get lost in the weeds about what it actually means, but the short story is it means it's taking effect a lot earlier than people thought it might. And it seemed to be avoiding some of the major pitfalls that hit the Kyoto protocol, which was, you know, the leaders agreed to it in, in the, in the actual negotiation. And then it didn't really get approved by countries around the world, uh, at least enough of them. Um, so hopefully we're avoiding that here with Paris and it's going to go forward and that should be seen as a good thing. Other folks are saying that this has helped because it, uh, it, it might quote Trump proof the agreement in that it's taking effect and it'll be a lot harder, uh, to, to pull out of it, uh, if he takes office. So that's, that's good. And then, then I think the HFC's announcement as well is another sign that we're making global progress. We're working together uh, constructively to address these issues. And I mean, if anything, I just, I, I feel like that changes the, the view for the public that this is somehow the U.S. going alone or that, you know, we're, we're hurting ourselves by taking part in these agreements, which is the sort of talking points that you hear from, from Trump and folks in Congress who want to oppose them as well. It's time to take a quick break here and talk about our sponsor, Wonder Capital. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder's online investment platform allows you to earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. That's something we can all get behind. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment fund goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't have any fees for investing your money. You can create an account for free at Wonder Capital. It's at wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. So, and Jacqueline, I wanted to ask you about the science here too. There's this, um, uh, there, uh, there's a group of scientists who I would characterize as CO2 hawks, you know, not climate hawks, meaning they see, this is David Archer and Ray Pierre Humbert and uh, Gavin Schmidt to some extent and others who, who note the importance of the primacy of CO2, carbon dioxide, because it lasts so long once you put it in the air and and it's the dominant thing going forward and the one that would be hardest to reverse. Um, and the, uh, Ray, in a piece I ran yesterday, I guess, um, was concerned that if there's too much, it's this weird balancing act between making a lot out of something that's, you know, a significant step and making sure you don't, people don't start to take their foot off the pedal on other climate policy because they think, that it's solving something, you know, a lot of people in that sort of CO2 hawk arena see uh, even talk of methane because it's so transitory and HFCs as being a sideshow to compared to dealing with CO2. I don't know how much you've looked at all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Only only from sort of the long term perspective, you know, that 
um, you know, some of the, the abrupt events that we've had in the past, you know, may have been methane related um, versus CO2. And the, the scary thing about, you know, methane is that there can be tremendous reserves of it that can get released really quickly. So even though it has a low residence time um, relative to, to CO2 in the atmosphere, it still, um, you know, has the the more of an impact, you know, rel rel relative to its abundance. Um, I mean, so it, it's one of those things where I, I just, I don't necessarily come down on one side or the other. It's it's more that, um, you know, we need to be doing everything that we can. We need a, a diverse array of solutions. And I think it's important that we have really aggressive voices, um, just as I think it's important that we have some voices that are kind of calling for compromise, which sounds like a super wishy-washy answer, which is probably appropriate for a, a, an episode on politics. But, um, you know, I, I, I guess I just... Where, where we have a lot of unknowns, I just think it's important to have a, a, an, I think the conversation is the most important thing rather than necessarily right now figuring out which particular, you know, I don't want to call them faction is correct, but, um, you know, they bring up really good points, which is no matter what, we can't just pat, pat ourselves on the back and say that, you know, we've, we're doing enough. Um, but ultimately, I think it's going to take I mean, we've just talked about so many different kinds of sources of emissions just in this podcast that are all relevant to policies that are also relevant to everyone, you know, to people's everyday livelihoods across very different socioeconomic backgrounds, right? And so the just, if, if anything, I, I would I would hope that people at home who are listening or, or wherever are, are realizing just how complex emissions are from just a practical perspective let alone a political one for sure yeah Is that, did that make any sense <laughs> oh it does and, and it's just hard stuff because you know when you try to boil this down for the average person too and you start talking about global warming potential like you you all you both have seen the arguments about even that like how much methane is the equivalent of how much co2 there's there are some pretty significant scientific arguments that are still playing out about that question and and here you are like the politician or the journalist trying to kind of get this into some kind of phrasing that the average person will understand. It gets to be really hard in a hurry. And then if, yeah, if you want to get even more, you know, confusing, just start talking about water vapor and clouds <laughs> and yeah. Water vapor feedbacks. Yeah. Right. It's one of those so, phrases that are like impossible to write without three qualifiers in a sentence. Oh God. So I hate, when, I hate them. Yeah. Oh, the worst, the worst to me is just the two degrees thing because it's two degrees. We shall not warm the planet more than two degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average temperature of the planet, which no one ever really kind of specifies. It's like down there and somewhere in the mid 1800s before we started burning a lot of coal. And, and what, what is, you know, why not just say warm from now, <laughs> you know, it'll be, I think it's a half a degree from, from now. And, but then when it becomes jargon in within these processes, you know, some politician will talk about two degrees or, and now of course, 1.5 and, and, sensitivity too yeah oh and it just gets to be a nightmare and, and then put this against there the, the other thing that's in the news again is this um um yale had done this um, survey work showing that even people who seem pretty engaged on climate uh, tend not to talk about it this is the average you know, person like over the dinner table or with friends it, they call it a spiral of silence uh, tony losarowitz and others at yale and john schwartz just had a story in the times again about this, and this gets to this question of what's the kind of the chicken and egg, the I guess it's more cart and horse thing with uh, politicians or journalists 
what's the responsibility of a politician or a journalist to keep digging in on something that's important, even when the public zones out on it, because for all the reasons that they do. Well, it's like that, um, the coral reef piece that came out in Outside Online last week. Oh, yeah. Saying it was was like the coral reefs or the Great Barrier Reef died. And it was like something like, you know, two billion years till today or something along those lines. Like, basically, it was an obituary for the Great Barrier Reef. And a bunch of scientists were like, whoa, back up. (laughs) You know, the, the Great Barrier Reef is not dead. You know, it's like it's like cutting someone said it's like cutting half the trees down and saying that the forest is gone. And um, and and the reason why that matters and, you know, this this harkens back to that tweet correction that I did for one of Jill Stein's tweets about sea level rise and, and people being displaced. The reason that this matters is because, you know, the environmental movement has such a history of losing public trust because of doomsdaying and um, uh you know, exaggeration and just to, to make an impact, to get people to care. And then when, when those you know doomsday prophecies turn out not to, to manifest, then the response is, oh, you made it up or you lied or, you, you know, it's, we can't trust you. You're not honest actors. And, and so you have that extreme where, where people just stop listening. And then the other extreme is when people do believe and they do listen, and then they just think, oh, well, the Great Barrier Reef is dead. There's nothing we can do. Well, I guess I won't change anything. I'm just going to tune out because otherwise it's just too depressing and there's really nothing I can do about it. It's it's an amazing paradox. Kate, you must have had these, this experience reading other stuff, if not not dealing with it yourself, where um, you know how this, this is what happens. Um, a journalist at a, let's say, a not very responsible place will, will call around to scientists because of a new CI study and looking for the most dramatic quote. And the scientist who is nuanced, uh, the journalist says, oh, thank you very much. And then just calls up someone else, keeps calling people until it gets to one that's going to say the inflammatory extreme thing. Yeah, well, I think one of the problems also, one of the things I see is you'll have someone who probably hasn't covered this before, so can't put a new study in the context of the larger literature. So, you know, if you look at a study, a study in isolation, it might seem a lot worse than, you know, what is actually true based on what other people have come to understand. And that's part of the problem. I also see a problem where headlines end up being a whole lot more, uh, a whole lot more inflammatory than what the actual body of the article says. And that's the fault of, you know, people who are writing the front page, not necessarily the reporter themselves. And of course, I think, well, I'm curious to know what you all, what the two of you think about whether the, um, our instant kind of journalism now has worsened this issue with um, the focus on the the tweetable uh, five words as opposed to nuance, which we all know no one's going to read. And it just seems to be a, that seems to be a spiral, like the opposite of the spiral of science. It's like the spiral of silence. I mean, it's like the spiral of hype. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that is absolutely one possibility, but I also like that the internet, you, you can correct things faster as well. So if you really do screw something up, you can fix the story and fix the headline. And there are plenty of people who are waiting to tell you that you did it wrong. Yeah. I th- and I think, you know, I've, I've, I've teach this stuff now too, and I, I'm still split on whether I, I think it's just right. It's kind of, it's kind of accelerated that cycle and I think it's good, but the reader, some part of the responsibility has devolved to the reader to kind of like, know. and this isn't just on climate. It's like, on the Boston Marathon bombing or whatever, you know, I think there's this like cycle now where you have to know, have a reflex, like when to turn off your, the Twitter flow or when it's not reliable and then wait and, and then 
watch this, the correction happen. I, 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 I don't know. I, I, in the courses I teach on communication, half the time I'm talking about what the audience needs to do. I don't know if you guys have thought about that much. Yeah, I mean, we're all, we all need to be more literate in our consumption of media as reporters and as readers. I think that's absolutely the case. Um, that's probably especially true as, as a reporter. Have, have you or others at Huffington dug in on the, um, like setting aside the presidential race, the issue with the control of the Senate and the House and how that might relate to climate policy? I think like a lot of people, we've probably not been paying as much attention to the House and Senate as we should. And actually, we were just having a meeting this morning about how we should all chip in with more pieces on, on those races. I think that there is a growing sense that while it seemed like flipping the House or Senate was totally not possible a few weeks ago, it's seeming like it might be much more possible. You know, even folks like Daryl Issa from, Can uh, from, from California, who was seen as a pretty safe Republican seat, is now facing a pretty tough re-election bid. So I, I think that there are a lot of races that we could see flip that we didn't think were anywhere near possible a few weeks ago. But it all depends a lot. I mean, a lot of it's going to depend on turnout in all these races, right? So if people actually don't come out because they're not feeling particularly enthusiastic about Donald Trump or, or Hillary Clinton, that could that could change this outlook quite a bit. Amazing. And have you have you been tracking? There must there are all these uh, backroom conversations and judgments that are made in newsrooms and among the Washington Hoi Polloi when a certain level of probability happens in a race where even though the media are still playing it as a race, it's not a race anymore. Is that, is that <laughs> happened? Um, I don't know. I think, I think almost all of them are, are still pretty real races right now. Uh, yeah, it's, I feel like there's this tension all the time here between overhyping the, you know, how competitive it is, but also then underhyping it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's just, it's a it's a it's a hard one right now, but I do think it's worth looking at some of these uh, down ballot races a lot more closely than we have been. And this is hard because obviously the the presidential campaign sucks all the oxygen out of that room. Yeah, that's been the case on the op. You know, I write for the opinion side of the Times and trying to get any kind of love homepage home homepage love for my pieces these days is I kind of gave up two months ago because it's just so. It's like monomaniac, monomaniacal, and and appropriately so. It's a big deal. This is this is a consequential moment. I guess. Yeah, I looked at our front page later, and it was almost one hundred percent pictures of Trump and a, a few pictures of Clinton. That was that was basically it. Um, but uh, one thing I was going to say is, um, I, I do think you know, there's a lot of talk right now about okay, what is the future of the Republican Party after Trump gets blown out in this race, which is probably going to happen, and I. I do think and hope that there's an opportunity for some some real discussion on on, on climate solutions among uh, some of the folks in the party who, who do take it seriously after the election. I think I think you're seeing more of the sort of Washington state think tanks taking seriously the idea of a carbon tax or a grand tax deal, um, and even some members of the, of the House who are coming forward and putting forward conservative climate and energy solutions. So, I I do I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic that that, that that will happen after the election's over. Yeah, and I've just been really surprised that, especially after this year with um, Crystal Serenity and and you know the the fact that the uh, which was that cruise ship that went through the Northwest Passage and and the fact that I've been hearing from folks who work in you know at the Pentagon for a long time now that they're concerned about climate change as a national security issue. I was just I've just been so, kind of waiting for that rhetoric to get picked up by the party in a more mainstream the Republican Party in a more mainstream way because that you know just hasn't happened. Um, 
and uh you know just whether it's i mean i just feel like that there's some natural ends where they could bring climate change in either as you know via national security or um you know bringing back innovation and jobs in technology you know and making you know the us be a leader in you know new green technology efforts and um and not having those jobs sort of go go overseas um or not have a brain drain of sort of green technology expertise and i just feel like these are such low-hanging fruit opportunities um and i haven't really seen them be leveraged yet in any meaningful way um, yeah we'll see i guess it could right looking with a slightly longer time scale with the political cycle if this does kind of prompt a, a re a reboot i'm still not sure that's possible for the republicans given how their the primaries work and everything um that there could be uh, the emergence of something that i've uh, talked about years ago and others well, basically the idea when the climate bill failed 2009 2010 um, i talked to a bunch of political pundits about well what would be the what would be the architecture in Washington that could possibly produce climate legislation or, or climate-related energy legislation that would get through and get signed? And they always circle back to the only architecture that would work with our our system, including that 60-vote supermajority, is a moderate Republican president. And of course, the the laugh line, the laugh line there, the last few years, uh, is how do you possibly foresee a moderate Republican president? But maybe that is is there. Kate, is that like something you could even think happening and down the line? Well, <laughs> yeah, looking looking back now, it's like, well, I mean, uh, John McCain and Mitt Romney were were moderate Republican presidential candidates by the standards that we're looking at them today. So, um, you know, I, I do tend to think that things will swing one pretty far one direction before they swing back the other direction. So maybe that's what we're seeing right now. Is there anything either of you would see as what we call positive uh, feedback for this week or this this moment? Uh, anything caught your eye, either politically or or scientifically, that got you um, sort of excited? I'm feeling dark this week. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's you know, it's that time of year. It's I'm heading I'm heading to Penn State mm -hmm. tomorrow to do a, a workshop with scientists about how to talk to reporters about their work. That makes me optimistic. Oh, good. What's the kind of thing you tend to say to them? Speak as clearly as you possibly can and, you know, be patient with reporters. We're not dumb, but sometimes we have to ask to be dumb questions because we want to make sure we convey things as accurately as possible. And Jacqueline, do you have like, do you do boot camps with other scientists who are not as communicative as you are? Oh, um, I have not. I have not been called to serve in that way yet. Um, sometimes, you know, in, in informal ways with my fellow, um, you know, with, with more, more with grad students, um, I've, and I've given some mostly actually talks about social media use um, and how that can be useful, which often involves framing it more in terms of, you know, more mercenary ways as like, you know, using it to for collaboration or, or time saving or things like that, not necessarily as much as a communication tool. But I mean, I think partly because there, there have been such really great um, outreach and communication programs, things like Compass and um, NSF's Be the Messenger and um, the Aldo Leopold Fellowship and things like that. So that's a wrap here on our warm regards. Um, more politics and science to come in the weeks ahead. Uh, thanks very much to Wonder Capital for sponsoring this podcast. 
Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S., earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Thanks, as always, to Jacqueline and to Kate down in Washington for contributing to this latest podcast, and we'll see you all soon. Uh, You can follow this podcast on iTunes, of course, Twitter, and Facebook at at Our Warm Regards. Thanks for listening, everyone. Mm